0: You couldn't look at the Jerusalem temple for too long in broad daylight. It was covered in gold, and according to one ancient historian, it reflected so fierce a blaze of fire that those who tried to look at it were forced to turn away. In Jesus' time, the temple towered over the crowded streets of the city on an enormous platform. 275 by 450 meters. That's, it's hard for me to visualize something like that, but that's more than four times the size of the Athenian Acropolis with that famous Parthenon. Stones in the retaining wall below the temple were themselves up to 10 meters long. It was a massive and beautiful structure made to impress, made to inspire awe. Herod the Great began work on this wonder of the ancient world around 20 years before Jesus' birth. It was a costly building project that took many years to complete. And you could see it from miles away as you approached Jerusalem, this towering house of worship shining bright in the sun up above the city. So it's not hard to imagine the disciples being impressed as they walked out of the temple grounds with Jesus one day. These guys are from fishing villages in Galilee, remember, where everything is close to the ground, where buildings are made from materials that happen to be close at hand. Look, teacher, one of them says, what large stones and what large buildings. It's not hard to imagine the disciples' wonder at the temple. It was made to evoke just that reaction, after all. And it is not hard to imagine their shock or maybe disbelief when Jesus snapped right back, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on another. All will be thrown down. To question the permanence of the temple was sort of to question the whole idea of stability itself. This was the dwelling place of God, after all, the sign of God's presence in and among the people. And if anything around looked like it was built to last, it was definitely this. So what is Jesus up to, saying this sacred place won't endure? Why dash his disciples' wonder with these harsh words about stones crashing down? It helps to remember where we are in the story. It's the last week of Jesus' life. His final confrontation with the religious and civil authorities is quickly approaching, and very soon life as the disciples know it is about to come crashing down. Great disturbances are on the way. Their teacher's betrayal and trial and execution, the end of their life following him around Galilee, and this deeply uncertain, wide-open future. It is going to feel like the earth is shaking beneath their feet. The rumblings are there already. So it is just the sort of moment for an apocalypse. We tend to think of that word apocalypse as referring to doom and gloom on a cosmic scale, but it really just means a revealing, a revealing of a deeper truth than what is readily seen, a deeper reality than what's immediately there in front of you. And Jesus is speaking in apocalyptic language here. All this talk of earthquakes and famines and beloved structures falling apart All sorts of terrible things may be happening around you, he says to his disciples here on this threshold of the chaotic events they're about to experience. All sorts of terrible things may be happening around you, but do not be deceived. There's a deeper truth still at work. There's more to the story. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. Everything was about to come apart in the disciples' world Jesus' apocalyptic language is clearly speaking to that. Biblical scholars will also remind us that everything was about to come apart in Mark's world as well. We don't know exactly when this gospel was written, but it was clearly about 40 years after Jesus' death, right around the fall of Jerusalem, either just before or just after. In the year 70, in response to fears of an armed Jewish uprising, Rome attacked the city of Jerusalem, and destroyed this very temple that Jesus and his disciples are looking at today. When they were through, hardly one stone was left on another. For Mark's community, early Jewish Christians, living in and around Jerusalem, this was a moment when the world and everything stable and trusted in it seemed to be falling apart. It was a moment that seemed like it could be the end of everything. And so Jesus' words here, Do not be alarmed. This is not the end. Would have been particularly resonant, particularly close to home. That's actually what apocalyptic literature means to say to its hearers in whatever traumatic experience they may be facing. Don't panic. Don't lose your head. Because this is not how the story ends. It's a little bit like reading Harry Potter which happens to be a very common activity in my house these days. It's a long series, seven books, each of them hundreds of pages long, and each of them filled with lots and lots of ups and downs. There are moments when everything seems right in the world, when good is clearly triumphing over evil, when Gryffindor is winning at Quidditch, and the pieces all fit together. And there are moments, lots of them, particularly in the later books, when everything seems to be falling apart, when evil is gaining a foothold, and those who could help refuse to do so, and friendships are strained, and it seems everything is just a way, a step away from complete disaster. There are dark times in these stories, times that could be all but overwhelming. But here's the thing, when you are reading one of these books, you know where you are in the story. Unless you've reached the very last page of the very last book, you're still somewhere in the middle. It's not over yet. And no matter how bad things may get, you can always say, this is not how the story ends. As Christians, we can actually do the same thing with our lives, and we're meant to, in fact. Because remember, we are alive within a great story. It began with a God who created, out of love, this whole wide world with all life that's here. It continued into this long and complicated middle with all sorts of ups and downs and troubles and mishaps and surprises, and we're alive somewhere in there. That's where our lives take place. We have the beginning and we have the middle, but that's not all, because we also have the ending. And friends, it's a really beautiful one. I know you're probably well trained and don't look at the end of the book you're reading until you actually get there. But with the Bible, we are supposed to do that. We are supposed to peek, and it is a really good ending. There's a new heaven and a new earth. There is a river bright as crystal flowing through the middle of the city. There is the tree of life with fruit for the healing of the nations. There's a new beginning. A new future, a new wholeness for all life. That's how the story ends. That's where it's going. And when it feels like everything else is lost, like the stones making up the most precious and stable things in our lives or our world seem to be tumbling down, we are meant to remember that. No, we are meant to say, when fear and hopelessness seem final and everlasting. God has promised how this story ends And this is not it. It doesn't end with one great mess. It ends with life. Okay, some of you might be raising an eyebrow right about now and saying, well, isn't that a convenient way to avoid responsibility? If God is going to take care of everything, what's preventing us from just sitting back and letting God fix all of humanity's messes? You might be thinking this is just the sort of theology we need to resist in the middle of a climate crisis when the well-being of the whole earth is at stake. We can't just leave it to God. We have to act. And yes, you're right, we do have to act. An apocalyptic literature like our passage from Mark or our reading from Daniel or the book of Revelation with its vision of the new heaven and the new earth Doesn't mean to leave its hearers complacent or unconcerned about the world around us. It's meant to remind us that, as challenging as this moment may be, this is not how the story ends. And come what may, God is faithful. God will remain faithful to his creative resolve even if the world he has created founders on its own wickedness, says Jurgen Moltmann. God's will for life is greater than his will for judgment. God's yes outweighs God's no. And that makes all the difference for how we live right now. Moltmann goes on. Life out of this hope then means already acting here and today in accordance with that world of justice and righteousness and peace. Contrary to appearances, contrary to all chances of success, it means an unconditional yes to life in the face of the inescapable death of all the living. Do you see it? Because we trust in the faithfulness of God, because we believe God keeps on saying yes to life, because God is always in the business of creating new futures, we can keep our heads up. We can find hope to keep up our work today and tomorrow. When we lose sight of the end of the story, God's ongoing creation, God's everlasting promise of life, we can lose our heads. We can panic and not think clearly. We can become cheerless and despairing. We can become frozen and unable to act. And that's just what Jesus means to prevent. For his disciples who are about to be shaken, for Mark's community witnessing the destruction of the temple, for Christians throughout history living through plagues and famines and wars, for us in whatever challenges we may face. Do not lose hope, he says to us all. This is not how it ends. We're meant to remember that. We're part of a great story, friends. And yes, we have a role to play, a vital one here and now. But at the heart of this story, from beginning to end, is the steadfast love of God. Nothing can change that, because the God who has promised is faithful. Because with this one, there is always hope. There's always a new beginning.